Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is William Evans. Will is a poet and performance artist living in Columbus, Ohio. He is a Kalaloo Fellow and founder of the Writings Wrong Poetry Slam, in which, which he created in 2008. He is the author of three poetry collections, the most recent of which is titled, Still Can't Do My Daughter's Hair. He is the editor-in-chief of BlackNerdProblems.com, and his writing has been published in dozens of publications. Will, thank you for coming on the show today. Of course, thanks for having me. <laughs> so I wanna ask you, what was your, uh, I think this is a great place to start in every interview. What was your earliest encounter with poetry? And why is it, how's it a part of your life now? <sighs> Oof, my earliest encounter, I mean, I remember, um, I think uh, this probably probably typical for a lot of people where like their first encounter with poetry was like, there was like a poetry week in their English class or whatever, like whatever, early elementary they had where it's like we're going to talk about poetry this month or this week or something like that right and like so you know like Maya Angelou was on there like you know like Langston Hughes was in there hopefully um you know and, and so I think those were like my first interactions with poetry where I can remember where I remember like understanding that this was a different type of writing right um compared to you know what we've been shown before um and I remember liking it immediately um, and, and, and so that is kind of the thing that kind of spawned me to write even when I was pretty young, when it wasn't required of me, right? Like when like wasn't outside of class, sort of thing. Um, and then I just continued to write more when I got into high school. Um, and, you know, high school is a place of great angst for many of us, right? And, and, and so kind of needing an outlet and, um, but I still wasn't sharing it right? Like it might as well have been a journal. Like I was just kind of writing like for myself and like all my, only my close friends knew that I wrote poems um, or wrote anything, but I wrote poems predominantly. And I think um, it wasn't until, I don't know, I had to be maybe in my early twenties before I ever like wrote something with the intent for other people to see it. Um, and so I just kind of like, maintain this this affection of poetry you know from a very young age um but i don't think i started like investing in myself as a writer and writing poetry until i was probably in my mid-20s um which came along because i had no idea what it was and i walked into a poetry slam right like i just kind of wandered into a poetry slam which i think so many people that do poetry slam they actually just wander into a poetry slam like you don't um i was gonna you know, ask how that happened because that's it's it, was so, it, you think it was like a kitchen like a kitchen you walk in and suddenly there's a poetry slam and i mean it was it was damn near right like i think um so so like the very there is a specific story to this so i um there was a restaurant and it's been named a billion things by now but like there was a restaurant called the brownstone that was downtown columbus right on main street and um it was it was unique at the time and we're talking back in 2006 um it was unique at the time because it was like a quote-unquote high-profile black-owned restaurant in columbus which not many of them at that time hell not many of them now but definitely not then right and so it was like a spot right it was a spot to go to uh for dining and I remember I went there with uh, my friend who was, who was my roommate at the time. And uh, we just went there to have dinner. 
and like you know it had multiple floors so we went upstairs and we sit upstairs and it was like oh and i remember i remember the uh server was like oh it's poetry slam tonight like i don't know if you guys want to be up here for this like i could seat you somewhere else kind of a thing and i remember being like my friend knew i wrote poems um and so i was like no nah, it's it's fine like it's fine like you know we don't like it we'll just drown it out i don't know whatever um and so it's just this very weird it, i just i remember that very specifically how apologetic they were like oh god like i forgot that poetry is happening like let me let me scurry you away from the poetry and it's like oh no no it's okay, i'll protect man. you right 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 <laughs> they really had our best interest in mind they did um he, he he tried to warn me he tried to warn me how hard this was going to be um but uh you know we stayed and we you know we listened to some poetry and and I remember saying to my friend, I was like, man, I've never actually got up on stage and like read poems before and, and, and all that. And he was like, if you want to do it, I'll come back with you. And I was like, all right, cool. And, and so <laughs> it really was that simple. And it really was that kind of like happenstance where I was like, okay, I went home. I like wrote a poem um, with the intent of like, okay, I'm going to get up and read this poem and i think a lot of people where if they are comfortable or they enjoy um performing or public speaking or anything like that um it's a little addictive right like you do it and you have whatever modicum of success whatever that means for you in that moment and i was like okay i feel like i want to do that again um and i just so then it became a weekly thing and um, I started trying to write every week to make sure I could read something every week. And um, and at the time that that slam was called Black Pearl Poetry is in the Brownstone. And that was like my first interaction with it. And this is me knowing nothing about Poetry Slam. Um, obviously I knew like open mics existed and things like that, but like the competitive part of this. And even when I first went, they weren't doing slams as I, I would come to know them. They were just doing an open mic. Um, but then when they started mentioning poetry slams and things like that, and I was like, okay, I have no idea what that is. And like, just kind of had to be um, taught and learned up on this. And I was like, oh, well, that sounds cool too, right? And, and I'm a former athlete, like I'm competitive and all this other stuff. So I'm like, why not? That sounds like some something I would do. Um, and that's kind of that's how I got started. And um, I slammed that first year that would have been, it would have, it was 2005 when we, like I saw my first poetry reading or attended or whatever, or read for the first time. It was like the next year in 2006 when I was on like a slam team that went to a national poetry slam. Um, and that was kind of my origin in it. That was my first start. And then I went for many, many, many years after that going to poetry slams. Um, and that just became like the thing that I did. It's fantastic. I, I think this would be a good time to have you read. Um, oh, sure. Sure, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I, I would love to hear. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so this is from uh, We Inherit What the Fire's Left. I'm not sure if I'm holding it up. Um, and so what do I want to read today? I've been thinking about this a lot. And it's some of the some of the stuff I'm writing now uh, has is different, but I'm still talking about home and the land and what and what that kind of means um, for me personally and how that's kind of a loaded thing <laughs> for my family. Um, 
ownership of land and, and, and things like that. Uh, so I'll read this one. This is called Vacants. We moved in before the rebound when the homes were still cheap, had our pick of the vacants, ghosts canvassed the neighborhood until we gentrified the departed. I would say our hood carelessly. We didn't want for much out loud. It's so brown here, my mother would say. Everyone had kids and then so did we. We fought over who had the greenest lawn, removed our shirts during July swelters. Our daughter met the twins up the block, then the other black girls who were a year ahead. The neighbors would walk their dogs, carrying grocery bags, stop to let our atomic girl pet them. When the fall came again, we saw the couple across the street rake their leaves. So then we combed our own lawn and the folks next to us followed and God said it was good. The woman two houses down argued with a new boyfriend and someone new must have called the cops. The light stained our windows. I have forgotten the last time I was threatened. Naive boy in my house of straw. I have forgotten the last time I was called something I no longer was, was called something I never was. Another cruiser entered the night and then they took everyone out of the house. In the spring, the house was still haunted. The city planted trees in front of most of the homes. Ours died because we never watered it. We didn't know who it really belonged to. Wow. Thank, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I read an interview that you had done for that, for that book and in it you had mentioned that um, you, you, know, you saw a lot of, you were surrounded by a lot of violence or you know, and, and death and, um, and, and you had, were contemplating your mortality. Yeah. Um, and it, in the, that poem that you read, the other thing you had mentioned was your daughter. And I know, you know, when, when I had kids, I started thinking a lot about what it meant me growing up because you see yourselves like through your kids. And I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what was going through your head when you were writing that poem, when you're writing this collection? Yeah. As it relates uh, to your daughter and as it related <laughs> to your experiences? Yeah, I, um, so uh, the, the, the kind of long way around this uh, is outside of outside of poetry and outside of the, the poem specifically. Uh, one of the things that I like in in, in the run up to to writing this book, um, one of the things I've been kind of obsessing over was like this idea of quote unquote generational wealth, right? And thinking about like the wealth gap um, as it pertains to Black Americans, right? And like all the things that explains that. And I uh, am in this what I feel is a very unique position. Um, my father owns land, my father owns property. Um, and it is something that I will inherit when he passes. And I just don't, that was not the case for my father, right? My father didn't have anything to really inherit when his, when his mother passed. Um, a lot of my friends who are my same age, um, it's 50 50 if they will inherit something of value from their parents or not right and so and this is the big divide and so um i've been thinking about that a lot now um 
because admittedly, I don't think I thought about the future the same way before I was a father. I just, I just didn't. Um, I mean, the cold, hard reality of it is, um, I think the future feels mythological when you know so many people that are not going to have one. Um, and so I think for me, I never thought of things of like, oh, you know, like nothing will happen in 10 years. It's just like, why make a plan for 10 years? Why make a plan for 20 years? Um, that's just not something that, that feels like something that usually comes out of a hive mind, usually comes out of a conversation, usually comes out of a collective, right? Like, where are we going to be in 20 years? And I think my earliest memories of companionship, those are not the conversations we had. We just knew a lot of people that passed on, um, that were imprisoned, um, where that was not the questions that we were asking. So it took me a long time to kind of think about, hey, this is something I really need to be thinking about, right? It's not just some kind of pie in the sky. This is, you know, 10 years, it could be tomorrow, basically. Um, the way that the way that, that the world works, especially the way that years accelerate when you're a father. Um, and so that was kind of what kind of made me start thinking of this idea of inheritance, of legacy, of, of, of what persists, right? And so in writing about this collection, I think there's a, a few things. Um, and you kind of mentioned, you know, the background is a lot of the violence that I experienced. Um, my daughter is a lot like me, right? Like in terms of like personality wise and things like that. What is drastically different about us though, is um, we are in completely different environments at the age she, at the age, when I was her age, right? Um, we're very middle-class income family living in a pretty good neighborhood. Um, you know, she goes to a private school, right? Like these things, um, these things just, they were nowhere close to what was happening with me at nine years old. And, you know, my parents did everything they could for, and they eventually would move us out of, um, move us into better opportune areas, right? But not when I was nine. <laughs> not when I was nine. That just wasn't the case. We hadn't gotten there yet. And and so, you know, what I I feel a lot of and what what I think is in the book a lot is this um omnipresence of violence, um, of 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 danger. And me trying to reconcile that, like, you know. I am, uh, I am ruthlessly cautious about um, when I feel like my daughter is in, in a perilous situation that might harm her, right? And I think that comes with just being a parent and being protective, but I think it's also loaded for me because like danger felt a lot more omnipresent for me um, at that time. And so that's kind of just how I see environments. And so what this has changed for me um, is it makes me look further than, you know, next summer or whatever, like the long-term planning was not just like, it just wasn't the thing I took seriously. Um, and not only am I trying to put together a life, um, 
that is going to be beneficial for her. Um, but I'm also trying to think about, you know, what BS I don't give her, right? Like, I think I, I try to, um, and this is kind of getting back to where the poems come in. I thought a lot about, you know, what I stand to inherit from my parents, right? Um, and I think when I was kind of analyzing this question of like the very easy monetary, whatever um, means that might, that might entail, um, but it also means like, you know, you can say, oh, well, I, got, I inherited my father's hard work or I inherited my mother's persistence. And those are all nice and glamorous and things like that. But like, you know, my father experienced a lot of trauma. My mother experienced a lot of trauma. And I think we inherit those things too, right? Um, and I think what I try to do in the book and what I try to do still um, is try to outline what passes from me to my daughter intentionally and unintentionally, right? Um, and that became a, a really big theme for me in the book, right? And, and so that's kind of where the title came from and inheritance and everything. Um, and that's why there's several poems in the book entitled Inheritance. I really wanted to circle around this idea of what gets passed to us um, whether we want it to be or not, and then how much of that we retain and pass on to someone else. Um, and I think that that is a very, I think that's a, a, a very communal thing for families and parents and legacies. Um, but I think it, it means a lot also in, in, in black families, right? Um, when you're, when you're dealing with, especially changing environments or maybe not as change as much as we want. environments. Um, but you know, like, you know, the dream of it is often, you know, I experienced this and then I made a better life so that my child, you know, has a better, you know, handle on the world or situation in the world. And I think that's what the natural inclination is as a parent. Um, I think, you know, tracing that through, um, you know, my father and dealing with his parents, what his parents went through, right? We're talking like real Jim Crow stuff. You know, my, my father was, um, my father was very much, uh, you know, what you, he was what you would pass for a hippie, right? Like my dad was like protesting and, you know, his Afro was bigger than he was. And like, he was, you know, um, I think a lot about what my dad experienced specifically because my dad was at Kent State like a, like a couple years after the shootings, right? Um, and he tells me about, how like the, just the profiling and things that happened around in and around campus. And um, I think about those things that I don't have, some of those things I don't have to experience that my dad had to, or at least very overtly. And then I think about like all the mess that I had to deal with that my, my daughter may or may not experience, right? Um, but my daughter knows I'm cautious. She knows I'm, you know, protecting and it's interesting to know if she'll ever fully understand why, right? Um, right? Depending on her situation, you know, she she goes to a school that's pretty diverse and teach teach staff is pretty diverse, which is it was it was funny. I was um, in, in at Randolph College, and I said, and so I got the ridiculous pleasure to uh, be mentored one semester by Philip B. Williams, and I realized. 
you know, I'm I'm in my 40s, man. Philip was the first black male teacher I've ever had. And that's when I had to go to grad school. Um, you know, in my 40s before I had a black male teacher of any kind. And like that's that's crazy, right? Like that's just that's crazy. And and that's and that's also living in different environments. That's when I lived in the city versus when I lived in the suburbs when I was in high school versus going to a state college when I went to Ohio State Community, I mean Ohio State uh, University. And like that's crazy. Yeah. And so I, already my daughter is experiencing so many different things that I did, but she's also not experiencing a lot of things that I did. And that puts us at this weird crux of understanding, right? Okay, that's, that's interesting. And, and in that poem, I was struck by the straw house because a house is supposed to be this safe mm. thing, you know, and it, it's, it's so clearly in anxiety, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it shouldn't be, and it, it's upsetting. Yeah, it's funny. There's a it's, it's <laughs> one of the things my, my wife and I argue about is we so we have a dog, just like everyone else. Quarantine hit us hard, and like we, we got a dog, right? And, and so, um, my daughter wanted the dog, she'd been asking for three years. I held her off, and we got a dog. And one of the things, and it's funny, I mean, this is like shares that shows a different like experience between my wife and I, right? My wife grew up and she's from Cleveland. Um, she just grew up in a different kind of like neighborhood and environment than I did. And, you know, I'm very big about like, I don't want the dog barking at people. Like we got to train that because like, I just have a very visceral reaction to walking through a neighborhood and like dogs barking at me. Right. And not just dogs barking. People are scared of dogs, but I just have memories of people like weaponizing their dogs against me, whether that be people in the neighborhood, whether that be police, um, I just have these very specific um, memories of that that are that are frankly triggering, right? And so, like, it's like a big priority for me. Like, no, the, we're gonna train the dog not to bark. <laughs> it's not barking at the mailman. Like, we're not doing that. Um, you will and, be polite, <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. It was, it was like part of my like pillars. Like, you want a dog? Here's here's my non-negotiables, right? Um, and so, you know, like that his that is kind of part of this kind of like the straw straw house kind of thing where you think you're safe and you you forget what moved you right you forget what alarm alarms you um you know and it's it's in the book and it's throughout a lot of my writing that i've had like some you know thankfully not fatal but i've had some very just bad interactions with with police officials and with police and you know our neighborhood is super quiet it is mostly black and brown now. Um, and it is, I don't, I don't see police in our neighborhood much at all, but it is super present when it happens, right? Like when a cruiser and I'm just like, I don't wanna be anywhere near that, right? And so it's like, I have this illusion of safety at all times and then it just takes a very small thing because that's actually what the thing that's kind of baked into my dna now um and i just write about that a lot i write about a lot um as far as like you know it can happen at any time and that's definitely what i was trying to convey in that poem okay and and this this what what does safety mean to you i don't know the answer to that right i don't i i feel like 
Um, and this is one of the, it's, it's such a depressing thing to say, but I think it's accurate in that, you know, we talk a lot about, or, you know, like the, 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 the national conversation about whether it be racial justice, whether it be um, equity and, and equality and things like that. And I, man, this is, I, I don't think I've really said this out loud, but I think it's true. When we're fighting for these things of equality and we're fighting for equity amongst, you know, everyone that, that we encounter, those that have suffered the inequities, those that have, have suffered these inequalities, it's not for us. I think it's, I think it's kind of done, right? Like I don't, I, if I went 30 years without incident of any kind of um, racial aggression or anything towards me, you know, and I'm looking up and, you know, I'm, I'm 75 years old and it's, you know, I haven't experienced anything I would refer to as like racism towards me for 35 years or something, then like, maybe like, okay, yeah, I feel safe. Right. But I feel like, you know, it's, um, I, I remember there's a, a teacher said to me a long time ago, one saying to me, he's like saying it to the class. He's like, trust is not the way trust is built up right it's like you have like this pitcher and you pour water into the pitcher and when you're that water is trust like a little bit at a time you're like you're trying to fill it up you're trying to fill it up you're trying to fill it up right and so you have your trust is at a maximum and so when something happens to pour some of that water out something something happened that belays that betrays your trust you don't tip a little out you dump the whole thing and you kind of have to start over, right? And that's that's how trust works, right? And when when you, when it is an investment, and I feel that way about where my safety is sometimes, right? Like I could go without incident, I could go without having something happen to me or happen to someone um, close to me. But you know, a little thing is a is an affirmation of what I've been taught, <laughs> right? And so it's hard to put all that trust back at one time. And so, you know, if I am, excuse me, if I'm thinking about equity and I'm thinking about safety, um, will I ever truly feel 100% safe because of the things that I've encountered before? I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I'm, I'm usually a cynic, so I'll probably say no, <laughs> but, um, but, but, you know, like my daughter has an opportunity at that, right? And um, so safety for me, I think is, um, right now, I think I would boil it down to, uh, are we making progress towards a thing, right? Are we making progress towards a thing? Do I feel more comfortable, um, you know, do I feel more comfortable if, you know, I, if I was legitimately speeding and got pulled over by a police officer? Do I feel more comfortable that I'll make it out of that interaction than, you know, I did, you know, five years ago? You know, that's that that might be a progress, but that doesn't mean that I feel like, oh, I'm good. Nothing's going to happen here. Right. Um, sure. I still, you know, like if I'm driving somewhere and I don't have anywhere to be that's of, you know, grave import, then like if I see someone that's pulled over and they're black, I wait, man. Like I wait, I just, I'm terrified of like, I pull off, I saw someone pulled over and then I hear something later and I'm like, man, maybe my presence would have done something different. Um, 
So I don't know what safety means in that in that aspect. I just I I want to keep marching towards feeling better about these situations, um, without the expectation that I will ever feel a hundred percent. Sure. Well, I'd I'd like to turn to uh, your 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 work in performance poetry because you, yeah, you have been doing all sorts of crazy stuff. <laughs> um, I think it's great. You know, I listened to your Kingslayer album. You know, that was yeah. that was awesome. Um, and I want to I want to ask about the writing's wrong poetry slam because yeah. you know it it's it's interesting to have someone come into it with a competitive mindset from the beginning because the thing that got mm -hmm. you you know was <laughs> yeah. this whole performance thing and I'm actually still surprised that Kitchen was so close to you. And <laughs> 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 so you know it's um, <laughs> writing wrongs. So so I was you know at the, at that point. I've been in the Poetry Slam community for, you know, about three years, right? Two, uh, two years at that point. Um, but two years in the Poetry Slam community, at least at that time, was like an eternity, right? Like I had, at that point, I had traveled to do poetry, which was just like a thing I never would have really thought possible for myself or is not even a thing I knew existed before, before you know, a year before that. Um, and so at this point, you know, I was... I was maybe on a team or, you know, I was spending a week in New York doing, you know, reading at open mics and slams and stuff. And so like this, this was, it was, a, it was a lifestyle change for me. Right. It was, it was a thing that kind of um, not in, in a bad way. I don't say this with any negative connotation, but it had taken over my life. Right. Like it became a new thing that I wanted to do. This is the thing I wanted to do. Right. Um, and so at that point, you know, black pro poetry still existed. Um, I was, kind of like helping run that at that point. Like I went from attending to being slam, part of slam to actually like helping run the night. Um, and so I was invested in that. And and then, you know, the person I was running it moved away. Um, and I kind of had this decision to make about like, was I gonna continue to run that thing? Um, or was I gonna try and do something new? And actually the third one is like, I was gonna just stop. I was gonna just be like, I'm good. Cause, cause I kind of was, right? Like I was like, this was good, this was fun. I can, you know, now I have um, whatever reputation where if I wanna be like, hey, I'm coming through, you know, Colorado for a week. And I like, I knew people to contact if I wanted to do some shows, right? Like I felt comfortable there. Um, sure. And I remember something specifically my wife said to me, um, and yeah, this is like right when we got married. Um, but she said to me, she said, hey, remember how you felt when you started going to this night and you felt like you had a voice, you felt like, you know, you had this opportunity to like share this thing. Um, you know, are you okay just walking away from this or do you want to be able to like give this opportunity to other people? right? Like you have an opportunity to curate a space um, where people are comfortable doing this. Um, and so I was like, okay, yeah. You know, and I was like, I've got a plan though. I want to be out in five years. I don't want to be running a Bojus land for the rest of my life, right? <laughs> um, I was out in six, but- uh, Hey, that's close. It was close. <laughs> it is definitely, is, is, look, it's admirable because you can, I mean, and I, don't, I don't say this is a bad thing, but like you can, you can do this for a long time if you really want to. And, and so, yeah, I started writing wrongs and, 
I, I wanted at this point to beyond just slamming, I was definitely still slamming. I was definitely still heavy in, in, in that environment, but I also wanted to, um, I, I just had been investing in the writing and the, and the craft more. Right. Um, and I just wanted to bring more of that. I wanted to be like, Hey, we can perform our poems and we can be also like investing in craft. And so I tried to kind of lead the charge on that. Not in like, there's plenty of people in the city that have been doing that, that kind of thing. But in the, at that night, that's kind of what I want us to do. Right. Like we can be good performers, but we can also like do workshops and do these crafts and, and, and like, you know, check out this book that, I, you know, I've been obsessing over kind of a thing and, and start a community in that way. Um, that wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the aim of like where I started. And so that's what I wanted to do with writing wrongs. I wanted us to um, be more invested in the craft, but I want us to have fun and be good performers and enjoy it. Um, and I just, I had some, some, I was surrounded by some great folks that, that came to the night consistently and um, invested in the night, whether it was being on slam teams or, you know, running workshops or just kind of being part of that writing community. Um, and it was, it was magical for me. It was magical for me. It just kind of, it, it, it revitalized me again. I was like ready to hang it up before that um, from a slamming perspective. Uh, and it revitalized that for me. It kind of unlocked this other part of the community that hadn't been coming out to like open mics with regularity. And I was, you know, that's one of the best compliments you can have is where someone was like, oh, I didn't really think about doing this thing and this thing didn't really appeal to me, but this thing that you've created, I want to invest more in it, right? And and, and so we, I felt very affirmed um, about the popularity that it had and, 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 and about the investment that, that people had in it. That's phenomenal. That's gonna be, that, that has to be a great feeling. Um, and, and I'm curious, cause you're in an MFA program now. Yes. And you're, you're you're hunkering down for the technique at this point. So I, my, my question is, do you find that you're still writing with a performance mindset now that you're in the academic side of things? Um, no, uh, what's weird, is, I don't know if it's weird. What happened <laughs> somewhere along the way is, and I think, I think so many, I think this is a story that is very familiar for a lot of folks that get into, that, that enter poetry through performance, right? Like not necessarily people that were already like writing um, and writing and had craft in mind and then decided to perform or decided to go to a slam, but people that like went to a poetry slam, were inspired by it, started writing because they wanted to be part of that thing. And then they were like, oh, well, I like this writing too. I like this book too. And like started, in, you know, investing in the craft a little bit more. Um, I think this is a very, very familiar route for a lot of us um, in that I just got to a point, I was like, it doesn't matter what I write, I feel like I can perform it, right? And so I, I, stopped, I stopped writing um, with the intent to perform as much as I just had the confidence of anything I write, I feel confident I can perform it, right? And so they kind of remove this barrier or remove this kind of limitation, I think, of how I had to write a poem. Um, nothing changed in the technique of like, oh, I'm writing a poem in this way. It was just like, no, I'm gonna write a poem that I feel good about 
and I'm not going to worry about the performance of it because I feel confident I can do it, right? I can feel confident I can competently read this poem if I want to. Um, but also, I think there's a thing, and, and I could be speaking mostly for me, but also maybe other people experience this, is that like, I was no longer obsessed with having to read out loud every poem I wrote, right? Like, <laughs> um, I think when you are in this, you know, performance and specifically slam, because um, I do want to separate like the performance, being a poet and performing in slam, but like, I think I definitely held this mentality of like, if I'm writing something, it needs to be polished and ready for me to perform. And then when you just start writing more, you start writing more oriented towards maybe one of, you know, towards publishing or whatever, whatever your goals may change away from that. I just wasn't as worried about like every poem I write has to be performed at some point, right? Um, and it just became a lot less of an impetus on me. Um, in my writing until the point was it wasn't a factor anymore. Uh, and so that was kind of how that mentality changed for me a little bit. Um, I also, you know, and anyone that knows anything about slam, um, you know, there's usually like time limits or whatever, you know, like, you know, like traditional three minute time limit, you know, so you don't get someone that's like reading Moby Dick or reading like the Iliad at the head of slam or something. Right. Um, a full short story. I've seen. Yeah. 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 Which, which doesn't mean people don't try, but that's what the intent is. Right. And, and so I started realizing that like, when I knew that I was probably done with slam is not because I was writing in a way that like couldn't be performed. It wasn't even that. It was actually a very logistical issue of, oh, these poems would feel too short in a slam. <laughs> or these poems go much longer than three minutes. Like they're, they're no longer within these, the, those kind of those artificial boundaries that you have to put in something like slam. And once I made the negotiation with myself that like, you know, there was a couple of times where like I wrote a longer poem I was like, okay, well, I can shave this off and I can edit this down and now this fits. Or I wrote like a shorter piece and I was like, okay, well, I can, there's some things, something I wanted to explore here. I can go a little bit further here, blah, blah, blah. The turning point for me was when I was like, I don't feel like doing that. I don't feel like compromising that anymore. Um, and, and that wasn't even necessarily an indictment on slam. It just, just kind of told me where I was as a writer and what I prioritized. Right. Um, and when I was just like, I don't feel like fitting this into that box anymore is when I kind of knew I was like, yeah, I think I'm done with like the, the, the slam aspect of this, um, which didn't, which definitely didn't mean that I wasn't going to like still perform my poems. Um, but it meant that I wasn't going to like engage in the, in the competition of, of slam as it were. Um, and that was really the dividing line for me. Okay. And when you sit down now to do poetry, what what what's your focus? I mean, do you have one? Do you have a specific, or do you just um, let the writing carry you? Man, you know, I, I try to let the writing carry me. I, I you know, everyone everyone has a different philosophy in terms of how like how they approach the page, right, or how they enter a poem or whatever. Um, that's the thesis of this podcast. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> and and so, but I, I for me, something that has worked in terms of, I still like being able to surprise myself. Um, and so 
that means that I try to write a poem in which I do not know exactly where it's going. There might be the heat of a piece that I want to conceptualize. There might be a subject matter. It might be an emotion, right? Um, one of the things that I'm like writing about right now that I'm really fascinated about um, is the duality of like love and violence where the, the, the trust and the exposure that you make yourself open up for love also makes you susceptible to violence, right? Um, and so like, that's one of the things I'm like just exploring, right? But I've written five or six poems that may have that somewhere thematically in there, but they all feel very different. And, and, and I'm happy about that, right? It just means that I don't have a predestination of where the poem is going, um, but I can still, hit some familiar themes. So the way I approach it is I kind of start with what I think is the heat of a piece or the, the most interesting part of a piece. Um, but you know, that often is not how it ends, right? Like I, I'm like, I think this is going to be the most interesting part of this poem. This is what I want to write about. And then like, I let it take me somewhere and I'm like, oh, like <laughs> the thing, the, the, the thing that's hilarious about the, the book, um, We Inherit What the Fires Left, I mean, I wrote that book thinking I want to write about being my experience as a father and how I view my daughter, right? And how I view my daughter. And anyone that has read that book will tell you that book is about my dad. The book's about my dad. <laughs> it's about like, like, I can't deny it. Like I went back, you know, reading it cover to cover. The book's about my dad, right? And my, that book is about how I view my dad now, right? Compared to how I viewed him when I was younger. Um, and so I still like surprising myself. I still like um, kind of going where it takes me. And I kind of try to start with the emotion or the heat of, of a particular poem. Awesome. All right. Well, we have a couple more minutes left. I want to ask you one last question. And it's about, yep. it's about Simon & Schuster. Congratulations. Oh, why, thank you. <laughs> like, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Oh, it's crazy. Um, it should be. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, you know... I've been, I've been told by a good friend to stop saying like, I got lucky or whatever, right? They're like, look, you, someone could ask you for something, you know, you, you know they use this analogy. Um, if you're at a party and someone's going around asking like, hey, are you ready for this big opportunity? A lot of people aren't, right? So a lot of people might say, they may not say no, but they might not be ready for it. And like his point to me was like, you were ready for it. So the, the situation was um, someone had seen one of my poems on YouTube, right? And seen me performing a poem on YouTube and they just emailed me and they said, hey, <laughs> um, I am an editor at a, uh, I'm an editor at a Penguin um, imprint and I really like your poetry and I've liked your poetry for a while, but like this video came up in my feed. I would love to talk to you about, you know, what you probably, what you may have on the horizon. I was like, I mean, it looked like spam and I'm like, ah, okay. <laughs> like, and I, I mean, I responded and- Sure, Jake, if that's your name. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, and so I responded uh, and I said, yeah. And, and they're like, do, do you have anything that you're working on right now? And this is after Still Can't Do My Daughter's Hair came out. And um, 
they said, are you working on anything right now? And I was like, well, I am now. Like, <laughs> like, um, and so one of the, the good, the really good thing that came out of that, besides just like that, that opening up that, that brick in the glass is um, they said to me very plainly, they said, you know, we had like a really good conversation. They said, do you have an agent? And, and I didn't because I was like, I'm a poet. What the hell do we need agents for? Like, you know, I'm not like Nikki Giovanni. Like, what the hell do I need an agent for? Um, and they just kind of, they were very, I mean, I don't, I think I definitely would have done like my, my P's and Q's about it, but they were like, they were like, you should have one. Like makes it a more seamless process for everybody, you know, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the, you know, long story short is I got an agent and, and she, knew my work and familiarized herself with some of the stuff and we talked through it and and she said hey listen like I think you know this editor at this press um they really like your stuff and it'd be good but she goes I think we have a bigger opportunity here um you know this is something I think we should probably go wide with and and see who else is interested um and so the process of that happening ended up being Simon and Schuster was interested, and and they uh, they they won the book at auction. So um, they were a dream to work with. Um, I never would have thought about having uh, a poetry book on a on a on a, on a big printing press, right? Um, but they treated me they treated me like you know like it was a they they acted very big press like they were, but they treated me like I was, it was like a small press, like that kind of attention, that kind of um, detail. And it was a great experience. It was a great experience. And I'm proud of the book that I was able to put out with them. Um, and, and I think it also speaks to where the industry is going, um, getting more interested in poetry in general, right? You know, yeah. Amanda Gorman being, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Poet Laureate just kind of exploded. Like there's a stat they said after the inauguration, I think it was uh, Poetry Today, Poets.org. They said their their viewership of their site went up like 300% or something like that. Um, it's a very which is, statistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, which, is, which is amazing. And also, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this and we're all sick of this. Like it feels like every 18 months, a new big article comes out about how poetry is dead, right? Right, yeah. Um, no, it just, it's, it's like clockwork. It's a punching bag yeah. sometimes. Yeah, and it's just like, it's nice <laughs> to be reminded or have like these actual tangible reminders to be like, actually, no, like you you don't pay attention to poetry, so it's dead to you, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, I do think, and I felt a little bit of pressure of being like, you know, Simon Schuster's making this leap with this poetry book. Um, I want to make sure I put out a good book. I want to make sure it's a, it's a good book. And because I hope there's more opportunity for other poets to, you know, get this kind of publication that has this kind of marketing and kind of push behind it. We're just, we just don't get that. We just don't, we don't get that. Right. And so I'm, I'm happy with what put out and I'm hoping it, it uh, enables more of that. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you very much. I'm gonna. I'd love to grace the audience with one more of your poems. If you don't uh, sure. Let me. Uh, let me find something real quick. Um, yeah, I. Uh, it's been a good experience, and we. I have a, on a different imprint, but Simon and Schuster. Um, I can say this because it's been announced now. We have a. Um, me and my co-founder Omar Homan of, of BlackNerdProblems.com. Um, 
we actually have a book coming out um, later this year. That's an essay collection. So oh, that's exciting. Oh, yeah, cool. <laughs> very excited. Um, I mentioned how I realized, I didn't realize till after the book was done that this book was about my dad. <laughs> so um, I'll read a poem that is very directly about that. Um, this is Might Have to Kill. Might have to kill the thing my father says. His voice is a white sheet pulled taut over a burial. There's a gopher in my backyard. Might be a hedgehog or some other terror. Yard freckled holes and shit where the holes are not. There's so much yard and now less of it belongs to me. My father, who marched against the war, stepped around a uniform by getting a master's degree, spends his crop years low to the earth, pulling flowers from his teeth, wants me to kill the thing. It's easier than you think. We haven't discussed other options. He knows, I know that nothing will live forever. I don't remember when I first let mercy have its way with me, maybe after the third fight in the first white neighborhood, maybe after the summer they pulled Anthony out of the river or the morning after the fireworks when my hearing came back, but two of our party did not. My daughter wants me to kill a spider dangling like a proposal from the light. I pretend to be a creature, a chaos coming to get her until she forgets the muse hanging from the ceiling. Let me be the monster if it excuses me of malice. Let something besides me survive my recollections. When we bought the security system, we didn't get the motion lights. I wouldn't know what to do with an invader if I had my hands wrapped around one. I wonder now what would the gopher do if it knew it were being hunted. I once broke curfew and ran from a cruiser to avoid its touch. I fell asleep that night hoping no one was looking for me, hoping to never be seen, hoping to, I became a nightingale under a green black sky. My father says he knows where I can find poison cheap. It might take a week to die, to take the offering to die. I say, but the summer is nearly over and he knows I am still his son, or at least a boy who looks like him, waiting for the sun to finally go down. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Well, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit OhioPoetryAssociation.org for more information. Will, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.